Welcome to The Soloist, an occasional podcast series about solo performance and solo performers. Hi, I'm Steve, Steve Greer, a theatre academic and writer, and in each episode of this series I sit down to talk with a different artist about the practicalities and ambitions of making solo work. In this episode, I sit down and talk with the theatre maker and comedian Rachel Mars, whose solo shows sit alongside a number of pieces made with uh, long-term collaborators. She has two partners that she's been working with for a number of years, and we'll chat about both of them. I'm interested in that relationship between work she makes for herself and that which comes out of her partnerships with other artists. We met to record this in a lovely but quite noisy cafe, so you will hear the coffee machine running in the background. I've done my best to tidy up the audio, but there are some moments where I'm going to cut and jump around really loud noise, which left us completely unable to hear each other. We're also quite distracted at one moment by a lovely dog. I'd apologise, but it was a really lovely dog. We started off by talking about a show which came out of Rachel's love of comedy. So yeah, the show's called The Way You Tell Them, and it was a sort of an investigation of... Um, I think the, the strap line was something about like the the uses and abuses of comedy, um, and I'm trying to think. It actually started with um, I'd had a friendship with uh, a woman who, um, and our kind of trade was hilarious emails. And then uh, a, she was a performer called Judy Battalion, okay. and she moved to the states. And then suddenly her email tone completely changed and became very serious. And I and I didn't understand what was happening and I thought she was like pissed off with me or something yeah. so I ended up saying well what's why why is why are you not funny anymore essentially <laughs> why are you not being funny and she said that she kind of reviewed she'd kind of gone back and looked at why she tried to make people laugh all the time and she was tired of it and she was doing this period of trying not to and seeing what that was like and something in her attempt really chimed with me and I was like oh Jesus this is something I've been doing personally for a really long time. So you saw this pattern of behaviour she'd self-diagnosed. Yeah, I was just like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is something maybe I should look at. Um, and it just made me think about, I mean, I have from four or something like that, the first book I ever asked for was the Ha Ha Bonk joke book. And so I've had this kind of history of reading uh, jokes and was the kid in the playground who was in the corner of the playground you know, with a joke book, or, and then slowly gathering my first audience around me, okay. <laughs> while other people did sport, um, kind of telling gags, and humour was very highly prized in the family, and if you had something, it was a very verbal family, of okay. like, storytelling around the table, and all this kind of stuff, um, and making things funny, and then underneath that is a, a massive Holocaust history. I've always been very flippant and light about that, and we absolutely discussed it in the family, but... Uh, not really we never talked about like how the feeling the feelings of that um, and, and it was kind of held by my that kind of experience was held by my grandmother and so all these things were kind of bubbling up at the same time and my grandfather who was apparently hilarious but I never met him um because he died like three months before I was born and this kind of slightly fantastical mythic thing that I've told myself that like he his kind of spirit of irreverence kind of infected me in the womb um, which is probably not true at all Um, so these kind of and it was at the same time that comedy was returning to mainstream Saturday night telly in a way that it hadn't for quite a long time yeah and I, I felt there was a real um, backward step. Like, we'd had all the kind of alternative comedy that I was watching when I grew up. And then I was looking at a lot of the kind of, mainly, like, white male comedians, middle-class comedians who were playing uh, 
working class characters without any real sense of irony. So I was thinking about um, Vicky Pollard, played by Matt Lucas, mm-hmm. white middle class Jewish guy. Um, the Lee Nelson character. Okay, yeah. Which is a sort of, kind of the white boy. The white boy. Yeah. To use a problematic term, Chav character, yeah. played by Simon Brodkin, a white middle class Jewish man. Um, and I was just kind of amazed. There's an amazing dog here, that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just squealing. Um, and I was just, there was a kind of lack of, um, there was a lack of ownership of the dangerous pro- politics of that by these comedians. I just thought it was, it was a kind of return to like, tedious white male punching down and so all of these things were swirling at this time okay. which then led to the show The Way You Tell Them which was uh, an examination of my own and familial uses of comedy to deflect or to defer pain or trauma because um, you talk about the, the dynamic of decommitting yes. is that the word you use? yeah so decommitment to, to kind of produce a distance between yourself and your your opinions and yes. the thing that you're invested in or trying exactly. to talk about. So you and you can do it in life by just saying a thing and then waiting and then yeah. if the response seems to be negative so if you express an opinion that you really actually believe mm-hmm. um, and then the the response from people is silence or uh, attacking then you just say I'm only joking. Um, and comedians do it a lot and I, so I was like well what do you actually believe then? Like what's where's the where is, where is the truth of anything that you believe and are you prepared to stand up for it? And I was asking myself the same question. Mm-hmm. Like, when are you going to like nail your opinions to the wall and when are you going to do that in performance and say something and stand by it and not just like pull a stupid face afterwards? Okay. Um, so it was, there was kind of that debate. And then it was also just a debate about the ethics of how far... Who, who's the target of your joke and when is that okay and when, is, when isn't it because it feels like in the show there's this, there's this deeply kind of autobiographical or familial strand and then you're also talking about or dealing with this history of AIDS yeah and you play this extraordinary game with the audience with this piece of I guess documentary audio of a man describing uh, losing his partner to AIDS and being involved in a a drugs trial of which he was the only survivor. He was the only survivor. It was the it was the first major drug trial of a drug called ceramin in the west coast of America. And you play this um, real high wire act of introducing it to the audience and then taking to the audience to a place where they can laugh at a second version of it with the silences kind of intercut with what were like fart noises. Yeah. So that relationship to the AIDS history, um, where did that come from? It came from um, thinking about kind of, I guess, a modern, a modern trauma, like a, a modern societal trauma that had affected ge- a generation, this particular, the kind of first AIDS generation, I suppose, um, and then looking at the kind of responses to that. And casting myself as someone with no because I was like well I can joke about the holocaust because there's my grandma and Hitler sitting at the table I don't have a history with AIDS I can't I don't have HIV Um, I don't own that experience so where is the line for me to to mess with to ask questions of the target of so that. So there's a kind of ensued entitlement of you to the history of the holocaust yes. because of your family. Yeah. That same assumptive logic. Assumptive yes. logic isn't there for... Absolutely not. And no. so it's 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 riskier. 
and it also I mean the reason I was drawn to this piece of material which is from a documentary called We Were Here is because it's a talking head and it, it sounds like a gag so he's it's set up like a gag. These two men go to the doctor. The doctor says this. He says this. And in the end, bam. Unfortunately, at the, uh, the, the end, bam, of this, it's not yeah. a punchline. It's no. him saying, and everyone died. You know, it's the doctor saying, everyone died, we're all sobbing. But I was interested that you can get a laugh out of telling that joke because, because of the rhythm. Because it has rhythm. the right shape. So, so then I was thinking about comedians like sort of privileged comedians like Jimmy Carr who um, put the responsibility of the laughter on the audience and say, mm. well, I got a laugh, so that's not... I'm just proposing something. Their laughter is their own shit. And I was saying, well, it isn't, actually, because we're conditioned to respond to a rhythm. And so you can get a laugh out of anything. You ha- As the joke teller, you have to take moral responsibility. Yeah, the idea that it's a quite a curious argument that someone so skilled at their job stands up there and says this response has nothing to do with my yeah, choices exactly, exactly and I just thought it was it was lazy and privileged and so this fart <laughs> farts are funny full stop yeah I mean that's it so I was like what can I it also relates to a piece of um, prayer text from the Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement service there's a kind of long list of things that you apologise for that are both personal and societal you you sort of take responsibility like we have murdered it's all we and you go well I haven't murdered but someone in our community has murdered so we're apologising and one of them is like we it's called Latznu and it means like we've joked around we've not taken things seriously and I was like fucking hell this is such an old text and here it is like this community that has humour at at its core really or uses of humour um, and it's there in the text and uh, there's there's a kind of commentary on it that says like we've joked around we've um, oh god it's something about like we've we have basically we've attacked people without without, uh, without any sense of apology okay and I was like well what can I who's like who's good people I think it's something about like we've attacked good people and I was like well here's this guy that I've never met who's the sole survivor of a tra- massive trauma. He's about... He's good people. Yeah. How can I, like, deface him? <laughs> and what does that mean yeah. for the audience and their, like, moral compass? Because, actually, I'm not, I'm not trying to point a finger when people get laughs. I'm just saying you can get laughs at anything. Because you get... Lo- because what happens is when I play that track, there's a kind of awful tension where people know his history and know it's true and know that he is good people and he's gone through something appalling. And then I lay farts on him and it becomes hilarious. And, yeah, I guess I'm just sort of asking questions about the, the moral compass of the, of the teller, the responsibility of the teller. You're coming up to the, the Fringe, so what are we, in late July now. So in a couple of weeks, maybe less than that, ten days... You're starting a run of our kind of hearts at Summerhall. At Summerhall, so it's um, uh, I'm being slightly more caring of myself, and it's the last, only the last two weeks because I don't think oh, I okay. can do Brilliant. a whole Not run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, from the 15th. Yeah, great. Well, so we'll talk a bit maybe like the details of that show, but that came out of an earlier, or was informed by an earlier thing called "Sing It, Spirit of Envy," which I think I saw at Buzzcut yeah, in 2014. Yeah, it's the first time we'd ever done it. Was here, which was this, I guess. Uh, communal celebration of envy mm. um, and the envy is supposed to be this really or is this really individualising thing that you 
that you want it for yourself. Yeah. And that's what characterizes envy. But this was this seemed to be doing the impossible of, of like trying to render envy as a thing you could do with someone else. Yeah. So how did that's, where did that come from? That's the attempt. Yeah. So it's um it's a pop up choir where um, I bring people together and they've sent me in advance a list of things that they have envied or do envy mm-hmm. and then we sing it all together. Um, so it sort of came out of multiple things. It came out of, um, I think, you know, all good ideas are nicked. I think there was some, there was a, a complaints choir in Scandinavia. Yeah, I think it's two uh, Finnish artists or two Dutch artists and they, and they that's been very wildly successful yeah. and people get together to, to sing, sing their complaints. complaints. Yeah. But then I thought, well, you do express complaints. So that is already, you generally share them. You're not just like, oh, I hate this, I'm not going to tell anyone. Um, and it was at the same time that Gareth Malone was becoming very successful in that kind of, let's come together and sing, it'll fix everything. Which I do, I'm conflicted about because singing together is brilliant and very great, good for mental health. And it was the same time as David Cameron doing his um, big society stuff. Um, and, I, and then there was the infamous Boris Johnson yes, speech. Um, speech at the... Well, he was kind of... It was a celebration of Margaret Thatcher, I think, yeah. that speech, where he basically said... Um, uh, oh, I'll have to sing it because it's in the, it's in the piece. Um, in a, basically saying inequality is essential for the market essentially for capitalism like yeah. keep up with the Joneses that's the important thing so all these things were happening together in this kind of tension between individual stuff and um, the responsibility of the community and uh, the big society stuff which is like we can all heal ourselves together as we remove your funding um, and just I think I'm really interested in stuff that's taboo and solo and what that's like to put in in a communal space and so it absolutely it's essentially one gag which is let's all sing together about this very solo pursuit and make it a, 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 a yeah a joint enterprise um, and then yeah. so that fed into our carnal hearts which is about what envy and competitiveness yeah it's it's a it's a kind of um just continuation of the same inquiry really into envy competitiveness and um, the way that we are uh, through capitalism, really, I suppose, compelled to compete with each other, um, but then the resulting envy is still shameful and taboo, and there's no way of discussing it. So we end up in a kind of swirl of um, self-loathing. So you're expected to be competitive and envious. Yes. Well, at the same time, not showing those things. Not showing those things because it's um, shameful. Because the thing with envy is it's not... It's people very close to you. You envy someone. There's this line in the show, someone like you, but a little bit better. It's always someone like you, but a little bit better. It's not, you know, I'm not over here, like, envying, you know, Sarah Silverman. Because it's like, well, I'm not... She's not... She's far away. She's She's not not in my world. But I might be envying an artist who's quite similar to me. Um, And it's a very, like, using using the kind of collegiate or non-collegiate way the arts work that's a kind of microcosm of that because we're told that there is this one pot arts council england thank you we're all competing for it um we pretend to be delighted for each other when someone gets their award sometimes we are sometimes we're not but we can't express any of that and so we're not we're like driven instead of saying we're quite like a bigger piece of pie we're saying fuck that person they got a piece of the pie and it's really damaging and i and and very embarrassing to admit. So I'm kind of, exp- yeah, exploring that and just trying to kind of uh, unpeel the 
the taboo of it and unpeel the kind of political language around it to get to a point where maybe it can envy can just exist in the kind of spectrum of emotions that we all feel and do and do talk about perhaps okay so talk to me about the the form of it so the audience is kind of in a square on four sides yes and you have this quite tight format space yeah it's three meters by three meters uh with this exactly so they're really close to you yeah they're very close and the front uh, the front centre seat of each of the four banks of audience has one of the, the singers. So it's a show, it's a kind of odd piece because it's a solo show and not at all a solo show. Um, so it's me and four female singers. And it was made in collaboration. The kind of primary collaborator is um, Louise Mother Soul, who's half of Shit Theatre, who is the composer on it. Um, so she's she's the composer and she's the sort of musical director. So she's one of the four singers, and then three other brilliant female singers. Um, and it's also made with Wendy Hubbard, who is the sort of I feel like the unsung genius behind quite a lot of work. Um, she works with um, she's Jamie Woods' uh, director sometimes, or has been. She works a lot with Chris Good. Um, she's good. Um, and so the setup is. Uh, yeah, it's this kind of surround. So you end up with this kind of surround sound choral score that's live, and then me. I kind of joke about it and say me shouting over it in the middle and spoiling it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's that setup is from the Sacred Harp singing tradition, which is a Southern American states spiritual singing tradition that happens in a square with a person in the middle um, leading it. And it's also about. Uh, there's this, I think it's called Helmut Schuck writer, saying that envy is a targeted emotion. Without a target, it cannot occur. Um, and so it's kind of echoing this thing of sitting opposite, sitting opposite a bunch of people and, and looking at them while this stuff, you know, okay. kind of inviting this, uh, inviting the other as you're considering and the kind of it. the of the other. Yeah. Nice. I think I am, I can't remember who the interview was with, you talking about the significance of it had never occurred to you to have any male voices singing in this piece and that if I'm right the original production it was an all female production company as well still is yeah yeah yeah. it's it's a funny thing where gender comes up for me a lot in my work but I'm very surprised when people remind me I'm female because I don't I don't feel like I travel through the world aware of my own femaleness mm -hmm. at all uh, I'm not I don't think I'd necessarily feel male either, but I just don't really feel anything. And so to kind of make a, for me to make a all-female space was just to sort of put gender out of the window for, the, for that space and not to have to think about it, not, not to be reminded about it by anyone. And then, of course, you put it on stage and it reads as... Or women, <laughs> obviously, uh, and I was like, "Oh yeah, of course." But I think that's—I don't know if that's like my own privilege of like just not not being reminded all the time that I'm a woman. I don't know. It's a kind of power thing. I haven't quite unpacked it, but I just knew. I was like, "Oh no, this is." Oh, I don't want to have a male voice in this. But it also feels like it's whatever choices you make. There's that context of opportunities for performers still so heavily male dominated yeah, or male I, presenting dominated I, I had this, this like sense that I'd worked to get this arts council grant and it was going to women like it was the first time that I'd employed anyone really 
and had this tiny piece of money to give away, why would I not employ women? And I mean, that's more for the kind of lighting designer, production manager, producer roles. Um, I didn't want a, I didn't want a male voice in that mix, like a male sung voice. I was not interested in in an equality of voices. <laughs> um, but the but this kind of flip side of that is that people talk about it as like, oh, is this a commentary on female envy, hmm. which is um, uh, a kind of poisonous narrative of women destroying each other through, you know, through. I get, I think there's a, I think there is a kind of uh, a, some sort of narrative about women bringing each other down and men supporting each other to better jobs. You know, this kind of idea that, like, if there's only one woman in the workplace and then another woman comes in, they won't support each other. Because there's only one job. Because there's only one job, exactly. The, the woman, the because of job. fucking society <laughs> and misogyny. Um, so it kind of speaks to that a little bit. So, I mean, you said that the, the kind of our kind of hearts is this... Um, solo show, which clearly isn't a solo show. Yeah. Um, you've last night at the, the 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 DIY event, you talked about how working with someone else, working with with Greg and Greg Whitehead, was something that made you braver, or made both of you braver, that you would push yourselves on to to yeah. um, decisions you wouldn't have made by yourself. Uh, so you have a kind of couple of ongoing collaborative relationships. So let's start with the one with Greg. How did that, where did that come so from? So that came from, I think, 2012 or 13. We were both on an artist development thing called Starting Blocks at Camden People's Theatre. We were all working on solo shows, but I think there was some sort of draw to each other and draw to each other's practice in the kind of conversations we were having about the work we were making. And then that led to us informally dropping in and out of each other's rehearsal process uh, directing is far too strong a word but just kind of dropping in for a day and looking and suggesting some stuff mm-hmm. and then there was a little bit of money given to us by Rebecca Atkins and Lord at Oval House not to make a show I think maybe there was some like money that shouldn't have been there that for tax purposes sorry <laughs> so we got it, it was just great and um, we played in room for maybe like 10 days or all and not all together 10 days you know maybe over three months um or two months and the intention was there was no expectation to, to make anything but we were both at the time very interested in serial and in the kind of the podcast serial yeah and in um questions of narrative and that we weren't really using narrative in our work or were we and that narrative like telling a story had become alternative again because we'd all rejected it. Um, and so then we were like, well, well, we'll do this thing and we'll do it. Oval House, like, what space? Well, we've got two nights, all right. And we'll never do it again. It's not for anyone. It's not Arts Council funded. It's not like our opus. Yeah. I was working, beginning to work on Arcana Hearts, I think. Greg was beginning to work on Comeback Special. And that's where the, you know, that's where the career development was happening in those works. Yeah. Um, that's where the money was. That was like the thing. Yeah. And we would do this other like, you know, shit on a stage and be done with. Um, and that became a work called Story One, which is completely emboldened by this context of once, you know, twice off, whatevs. Um, and because of that, I mean, it's a show that's two hours long. That's start. This has been spoken about enough. Sorry if I'm spoiling it for people. Um, it starts with an entire episode of Come Dine with Me. It's a 47 minutes, and that beca- it came out of these conversations of like someone would suggest something, 
someone, it's me or Greg, no one else is there, <laughs> someone would suggest an idea and the immediate response is, oh, you can't do that. You can't show a whole episode. And then you go, well, well we can because we're only doing it twice or whatever. And so it's, that's, become the kind of, that's become the kind of guiding principle of that collaboration, which is, well, what, who says you can't and why? And what, what can doing it anyway, uh, what can that do politically what what can it shine a light on it's often like what can it shine a light on in terms of kind of cultural behaviors that we've all accepted and normal in this case the idea that a fringe show is an hour which mm. is because of edinburgh yeah. so we've all decided that the kind of contemporary theater is an hour yeah the economy that we've worked back from yeah the demands of edinburgh exactly so it's an, it's an hour right yeah, it's an hour and so people were furious when it was two hours 15 because that's too long for that kind of work it's fine for Hamlet but it's not you know football well not football 90 minutes but um, so people were kind of that was something that we were pushing against and this idea of showing telly in a theatre seemed quite kind but of it was a really kind of ingenious choice of show because it was such a, a communal watching thing that, that part of the joy of watching something like um, Come Down With Me is all like the talking about it like at work the next day or on social media that's almost more important than the event yeah so to put it in a theatre space seemed quite fitting yeah it kind of it puts all that stuff on the outside and then you flipping from showing the episode into kind of you'd both gone away and written like fan fiction yeah. effectively about so that's it. the kind of the major it was, we've, we've taken this episode of people who live in East Dorset we've written fan fiction about them because there is this trope of real person fan fiction but we're interested in the fact they've already sort of been fictionalised by, by being in this show and having their lives constructed for an hour, 47 minutes. And, and the kind of... Discuss- so then, yeah, so then we've written fan fiction for it. So it was kind of taking them and just, just like, driving them into the imagination through these tropes of fan fiction, um, sci-fi, gore porn, erotica. Yeah. Uh, and then sort of in the third part, bringing it back to the kind of uh, kind of suggesting a danger that, that these people might show up in the theatre where we've travelled really far with them we've been with Gary as in, he's in his threesome we've been with Philip as he's like gone through a really awful torture experience and then they might show up and where's the kind of <laughs> where's real and where's not real and, and where's the again I guess there's a little bit about responsibility the responsibility of the imagination and, the, and that's the thing about Again, that relationship between something which is maybe private and shameful and an act of communal sharing. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of fan fiction is written anonymously or pseudonymously online. Yeah, because there's because it's you know I'm, I'm interested again in kind of low low low. I'm doing inverted commas. Yeah. Low art and high art and kind of what, who fucking decides on what a little bollocks? Because comedy, I guess, is, is a form of low art often. Yeah. Um, or populist art. And yeah, fan fiction is definitely low literature. <laughs> um, but can we elevate it to something that's, you know, a communal experience and yeah. where we all delight in the writing, actually? Because a lot of that show is just storytelling. And where we go, this is, this is good quality writing, actually. Um, yeah, that kind of tension, I think. Lovely. And the other person you've worked with um, on a few different things is Nat Tarab? Yes. So, yeah. So she's a Southwest-based artist. We met on a DIY, actually, a larger DIY, 10 years ago. Um, and I think fell in love, really. And we're like, right, we're either going to, like, fuck and never see each other again, or not, and maybe we won't, because... And thank goodness we didn't, because it would have been a disaster <laughs> getting to know each other better. Um, so, yeah, so then we... I think it was that kind of, like, a tension between going, oh, we're the, se- we're the same. Like, you're a queer, female, Jewish. Uh, 
art maker who loves Tootsie, essentially. Yeah. Um, it, and, and has lots of swirling stuff around kind of gender and tomboyism and gender trouble and uh, familial relationships. Um, so we started making work then. So we've made, we've really made three shows, three full shows together in that 10 year time, which is not a lot really. Like there was a point where I think we both thought, oh, this is it. This is a company. We'll only ever make work like this. And then it very, we, we have very different uh, notions of success and ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we made a show called The Ladies Not For Walking Like An Egyptian. So this was the show, which was lyrics of songs written by women during the 80s so here's the thing delivered by women uh, a lot of them are very sadly written by men but Um, mashed up with all of the speeches given by Thatcher Thatcher. so we we took Thatcher's kind of top 10 there are those fingers in the air again speeches and looked uh, to the pop charts to see what was the highest selling hit sung by a woman in the charts that week when she was delivering that speech so it's kind of this question of like the public language that was in swirling in the world that, at that time um, and, and it has this kind of yeah core which is a mashup text of both of those things that, you know speak to each other so horridly perfectly um, her kind of accession speech is it accession where you take something up is that the right word the speech where she's on you know 79 and it's the yeah. kind of she's invoking St Francis of Assisi <laughs> is the same one as we are family so it's like you know we are family I've got all my sisters with me at the same time as she's talking and it was just her section 28 stuff is at the same time as I want to dance with someone by Whitney Houston there's a real pathos in it um, and through the discovery of that show it was really about the fact that Nat was born we, we had a very different 80s yeah. so her 80s was she was from, from 8 to 18 she was coming out as gay she was very very politicised she was marching um I was zero to ten, and I was really consuming the eighties in in you know lycra and pop, and we're just kind of in the process of that. Just kind of potentially discovered that perhaps my sense of con- um, ambition and capitalisms. I mean, it's also to do with character, but we were sort of turning up the fact that it just might be to do with the kind of what we'd internalised by the age we were mm-hmm. in that period, and that I was. Yeah, cutthroat, and it's the, we play ourselves, but turned up. So the kind of the Rachel in the show is is cutthroat, ambitious, capitalist, fuck you, and and her kind of Nat is is much more, um, yeah, reflective and uh, socialist, I suppose. So when you work um, when you work together with Nat, is it a question of putting studio time aside together? Do you exchange? thousands of emails how does the work process the work process basically uh, I think it's fair to say that I apply for things and then tell her (laughs) (laughs) Um, she's a visual artist and uh, uh, feels the need to perform I think or to be in this swirl much less than I do so I don't think she would suggest a project so that was me and Rachel talking a few weeks ago in Glasgow we were kind of towards the end of the conversation but thinking about what we might else have talked about and one of the things that I've written about in the past is queer performance and we realized that this was something that maybe was present in Rachel's work but we hadn't really thought about discussing so I came back with one last question do you ever find yourself adopting that perspective when you're making work so do you ever think about the work that you're making as queer work 
Um, or is that just part of the mix that's never identified as a as a conscious uh, perspective? I, I think I'm um, I think I'm constantly disappointed in myself and tell myself that my work isn't queer enough. And I don't know what that means. Like, I, there is a voice in my head that is, is, you know, we finish this interview and I say, have I talked enough about queerness? Yeah. <laughs> so that's obviously like, I feel like I want to, you know, I want to be considered in that, um, under that umbrella term of queer work. And I don't feel that I'm, do, I'm, I'm not queer enough or I'm not doing it yeah. enough. Um, and, and I sort of tell myself that it's inherent perhaps because from the you know because I do identify as queer and so I'm like is it enough that I identify as that and then I make work from that position mm-hmm. I mean I think I think that I think for me it's about a mul- things being multiple always multiple and uh, Nat and I have this thing and the opposite is also true at the same time like the opposite is all, is always also true so c- c- the kind of the kind of difficulty of of having a complexity in your work that um that answers as many questions as it asks or asks as many questions as it asks and, and doesn't provide a safe place to stand um so i suppose that is how i think about queerness in my work Lovely. And then I can also hear the voice going, well, that ain't queer enough. And then I'm like, well, what? What am I going to do? Get my cunt out. That's not the answer. <laughs> uh, you know, I've only got half my head shaved. Maybe that's quite... Well, maybe maybe that's, 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 you know... Is that's, this is not enough? Is this not enough? I've done that. that so enough? that's but, me um, chatting with Rachel Mars yeah, a few weeks ago here in Glasgow. Rachel's show, Our Carnal Hearts, which you heard us talking about, is on at the Edinburgh Fringe at the Summer Hall venue. So if you're listening to this interview as it goes out, then you should have a couple of weeks to get to Edinburgh and see the show. And I insist that you do that. To find out more about the kind of work that I get up to, as well as other episodes in this series, why not visit my website, stevegreer.org. Thanks for listening.